So, uh, you know, Tim, Jen, and myself all met in college, and we all went to this institution called Moody Bible Institute, which is a, it's a college, and Paul and Beth, you went there as well. And there's this guy who founded Moody Bible Institute. His name was Dwight Lyman Moody, and he was, he was ridiculous. I'm just going to be honest. Elementary, age, uh, elementary education, he was about this tall. There's a statue of him, so I know this. I've, I've stood next to it. This tall, and he was well over 300 pounds. Really big guy, big puffy beard. And by, by trade, he was a shoe salesman. He actually got his start by coming to Christ. He was from Boston, but he moved to Chicago, and he came to Christ in Chicago. And he actually got his start going to this prayer meeting, and he prayed so long that they kicked him out of the prayer meeting. So he started a Sunday school program by buying an old broken down mare, a horse, and he took it through the streets of Chicago and got kids to follow along after him and made a spectacle of himself, started a Sunday school, then started a church, then started an evangelistic set of crusades, and eventually a couple Bible colleges. It just kept going and on and on. But he was just the most hilarious guy. And when you talk about the word joy, sometimes what's helpful for me, we we have these definitions and we try to get our minds wrapped around words like joy, but it's helpful for me to just look at somebody who exudes joy. You know what I'm saying? And for me, 150 years ago, this guy did it. He was really something. And at the end of his life, he was so fantastically influential in our country that people kept talking about him as though he died. And uh, did, you, did you see on Facebook, Ted Nugent died, by the way? No. Well, it's, it's all a spoof. He didn't die. He's actually alive and well in Michigan. But it was going all across Facebook this past week. I'm sorry. We have one Ted Nugent fan. Anybody else a Ted Nugent fan here? All right, we got like five. Good deal. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, like Ted Nugent, Dwight Lyman Moody, what's, you're, you're going to be okay, Kathleen? You got to take a break. We got to have a moment. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know I was going to hit a chord, you know? So like, like Ted Nugent, it went around all the time that Dwight Lyman Moody at the end of his life was, was, was dead. And he actually at one point puts out an article in the newspaper and says, someday you are going to hear that I'm actually dead. And in that moment, I don't believe a word of it. I'll be more alive than ever before. And I, I just thought of that line. It, there's such joy when you're looking at the moment of your own passing, which he was at that point. And he had lived through the great Chicago fire and all sorts of disasters, and he had gotten in a huge fight on his board, actually quit his own board at one point, and then came back and got in a fight with this woman named Suzanne. It was real hilarious. He was just a funny guy. But through it all, he had this joyful attitude. And at the end of his life, he's like, I'll be more alive tomorrow when I die than I am today. That's joy, right? That's joy. And I just, for me, it's a picture of joy. Well, we're going to read the second chapter of Philippians. And we're not actually going to cover all of what's going on in in the second chapter. We're just going to cover the first 13 verses. But I want to read the whole thing to you. But I want to give you, behind this chapter is this guy named Paul. And he writes 13 letters to the New Testament churches and to a couple other people, Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And he writes these letters. And he's, he's, he's an actual guy. And you'll hear it in this um, letter. Sometimes we think of the Bible books as they are authority, right? And they tell us how to live, but they're also books from people to people. And Paul was a real guy. And we know what he looked like. He was actually a skinny, little, very energized guy who was bald. I really feel blessed by that last part. I mean, he was really something. And he, and he went from city to city to city across southern Europe and into Asia a little bit and, and, and maybe as far uh, west as Spain. But he, he would go from these places and he would plant churches and then he would write letters like this one to these churches after he'd left. And this is, of course, to the Philippians. And he's writing this letter and he's just kind of this amazing, joyful guy who goes through crazy stuff. 
In the middle of all that, he gets chewed on by dogs, beat up. He gets stoned. People rack him, and they think he's dead. They throw stones to, at him to the point where they think he's dead, and they leave him for dead, and he's, he's not. He just gets knocked out, gets back up. And uh, he gets shipwrecked a couple times. He goes through all of these different things, and yet one of the qualities you will see in all of those letters that he writes is joy. And he talks more about joy in the letter to the Philippians. And what's interesting is this is at the end of his life, and he's actually in jail. And he's writing from prison to these people who he has known personally and he's been connected to. He's actually taught in their churches and, and been connected to them personally. And he's writing them. So this is kind of half personal and half a little bit like, man, I'm in a tough circumstance, but I'm choosing to be joyful. And I'm also instructing you. I'm informing you. I'm helping you understand Jesus better. So this little chapter we're going to read is all of those things at the same time. So join me in reading it. And you know what? Let's just stand. as we. Re- I know it's a longer passage, but can we stand in honor of God's word as we read it? So it says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some days I don't think I'd do anything at all if I didn't do anything that was either selfish or filled with a little bit of conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That little line right there means he's about to be killed, and in fact, he is. He's beheaded eventually. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So this thought is going to, and it's from the middle section there, that we need to talk about it. We're talking about joy and humility, but the first part of this, I want to just mention, he comes to a single line that is really worth noting. It says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why in this world today would we choose to be humble, and what does it mean? Humility means to think of yourself exactly as you are. Sometimes people think humility means to make yourself small. And that's not actually true. When you look at God and he says, you are this, humility means that you agree with what God says about you. If he says you're a sinner, then you agree with him. If he says you're talented in this area, you're just spectacularly good looking like me. It's okay to say it. You laughed. Why did you laugh? Mel Christman is especially laughing, and I think I know why. Anyway, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure means that God wants to do these amazing things in your life, but in order to get there, you better be humble. You have to get rid of all that stuff that kind of builds onto our character and doesn't allow the grace of God to flow through our life. And humility is the ability to agree with God so completely that all of the stuff in our conduit of grace kind of gets broken off so he can just pour his life through us and in us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, one of the things that the Bible says about the cross in 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 the gospel of Jesus is that it is offensive. You ever hear that phrase? It's offensive. It's actually offensive to say to somebody, you need Jesus, you're not enough. Nobody likes to hear that sort of thing. If we look at ourselves and we say, we need something beyond here, That is offensive. I remember in college there was this girl, and I really liked her. I was a freshman. It was a long time. I had never met Shelby at this point, okay? Just, it's very important I mention that little line. Um, But I met this girl, and I really liked her. And then she started to tell me that my faith wasn't all that great. And she proceeded to take apart my faith and talk talk to me about the things that I was lacking. About 10 years later, I agreed with her. But in that moment, we were done. Because she said, you need to know this, this, and this about God. And he loves you more, whatever. I just we're done. You're, you're very attractive. I'm 18. Go your own way. She got married to another guy from our freshman class. That was it. Because I didn't like, and I'm a little bit prideful, maybe more than a little bit prideful, to, to, to look at myself and realize that I needed something more than I am. And whenever anybody hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, what's really difficult for us is that we're admitting that we're not enough, that we're dependent, that we're not able to live in isolation, that something about us has been broken and we need a repair. That's what the gospel means. And yet, when people get offended with church and when people get offended with Christ and Christianity, often what they're offended by is something else, something other than the character of God. It's not the gospel that offends. Sometimes it's just us. And sometimes it's these things that are stuck inside of us. It's our lack of humility. And when people get close to us, they they come across and you believe in Jesus, but you also do whatever that is. You know what I'm saying? I... True confession, on the back of Shelby's bumper, it says PFC. You know those little blue stickers or whatever, they're magnets that we have? Have you ever noticed on the back of my car what it does not say? It does not say Parker Ford Church. And we have another set of, Shelby has another sticker that talks about an organization we're connected to. I don't have that one on my car either. Because I'm always afraid that somebody would judge Parker Ford Church by my lack of humility in driving. It's true. 
And I, there's, some, there's some literalness to this. I'm always afraid. I'm thinking, if they judge Parker Ford Church, you know, maybe Parker Ford Church doesn't want to be associated with me in driving. Now, you can be associated with me in other ways, but honestly, when I drive, I forget, you know, all of this kind of ethical, spiritual stuff, and I just kind of drive the way I've always driven, and it's kind of a dog-eat-dog world out there, and I refuse to be a chihuahua. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's my mindset. So... True confession. One of the areas I lack, humility. But humility allows, in our truest character, it allows God's grace to pour into our lives, and it allows us to become functionally effective for the will of God. So it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And notice those two words, to will and to work. They're not the same thing. To work is to accomplish stuff, and many of us get good at this. We think of ourselves as people who are accomplishing God's will by doing something. And that's good. It's important. But that's not the only thing that's important. It's kind of interesting that Paul would write also to will, which means that what you desire is important to the world around you, and it's important to God. You know, the the Gospels tell us that if we ask, it will be answered. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be open to us. Remember that passage? If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be kind of poured out on top, Jesus says. And he says in John chapter 14, he tells us that if we ask anything in his name, then we will receive it. Well, what's interesting is this line has to do with your desires. And most of us kind of live a battle. We live in a battle land of our desires. We want this and we know we shouldn't want it, or maybe we don't even think we shouldn't want it. We just kind of know this is the way the world works. We're, we're Americans, right? You know what it means to be American is that we have this dream. We should all own our own home and we should have ever-expanding bank accounts that are getting bigger and our kids should go to college and we should be able to just grow constantly and continue to be comfortable and secure. Nothing about the gospel ever said that, by the way. That's 200-plus years of American history, not a whole lot about Jesus. And what this passage tells us is that when our wills get in line, not with the American government and not with the world around us, but with Jesus then there's some amazing things that God wants to do through us. But it requires humility where we divest ourselves of all of that arrogance, all of those things, all of the fear that gets us stuck and says instead, this is who God created Josh Bightwork to be. And when I agree with God about that, God just pours his power through me. And when I pray, amazing things happen because my desires are in line with his desires. And my accomplishments are his accomplishments. That also leaves the possibility that what we're doing is not actually what God wants us to be doing. And what we desire is not actually what God wants us to desire. And then what we're doing is we're kind of praying in opposition of God. Do you know that everything you do is prayer? In one sense, all of what your heart is desiring, God is listening to. He doesn't somehow miss it. And he doesn't start listening when you fold your hands or you bow your knees or when you're in one of those moments of prayer. No, he actually watches You know, that means when I'm angry with somebody in my life, he's hearing and watching me be angry with somebody who he created. And so this idea, both to will and to work, for it is God who works in you in these two areas. God is saying, get these things in line and get yourself humble and let joy pour through this and watch me work. And when we struggle to watch God work around us, what it is is we have a real difficult time getting ourselves humble enough to just be a conduit. You know, one time... When Shelby and I were first married, we bought a house, and it was, Shelby, it was the worst house ever, right? 
I mean, it was this terrible. We had to replumb the whole house, re-electrify a whole bunch of it, put a new furnace in it. It had an oscillating fan in the furnace. You know what an oscillating fan is? Those ones that do this? They duct taped it into the furnace, and they would just plug it in when they wanted the heat to work. This is a true story. That was our first house. It was awful. And I remember tearing the plumbing out, and I remember making sure no one was in the house when I tore those pipes apart because I saw things in those conduits that just would tell you, I, can't, I, I didn't know water could go through something like that. You know, you look inside them, it's, that's how our lives get. And Paul is saying, please get your conduit clean because God wants to work in this world around you. He wants to do this amazing work. And if you get humble, it's great. If not, not great. Notice also that he doesn't say that you're just going to be sinless. He doesn't actually talk about your character in the sense that you just divest yourself of sin. What he says more is be humble, and that has to do with your admitting sin. There's a real difference between living a confessional life and saying, yes, this is who I am, and I'm a, a mixture of great talent, and my God just loves me, and he thinks I'm the greatest kid. He has all these kids, and he thinks every one of them is the greatest kid, but also he knows that we're broken, and he's saying it. And when we admit that stuff, it's wonderful, but every now and then we act like, well, sin is the worst thing in the world. You know what's worse than sin? not admitting sin. It makes it much, much worse. And humility means you agree with God about yourself. And that means you agree with God about your talents, your gifts, and also your failures. And you look at them and you say, I've messed up. And I have a besetting issue here. I have a difficulty here. And I'm looking at these things. And I want to hand my desires over to you, God, but I can't do that on my own. So please work in me. And I need to be humble enough to admit it. Sometimes we have to admit it to a few other people. Not everybody, but it's nice to have a brother or two who comes along inside of us and says, yes, this is this guy's difficulty. That, that can really be powerful. So what God is calling us to is joy and humility. And the reason why is because he wants to do great things beyond us. And Paul is saying, listen, you can be a part of this. This world can change and I can work through you or God can work through you doing these amazing things. Across this passage, he talks and takes them through a kind of a process. And the first one is he says, what has God done in you? And let's talk about that. And then he takes them to Jesus and says, what did God do in Jesus? And how, are you, how is your life supposed to look like that? And then he says, how does God want to work in and through each one of us personally? So these are the three stages we're just going to walk through very quickly. And the second chapter of Philippians, if you caught on, begins with these words. It, it says, if there is any. If there is any. And it's a way of saying, listen, if God has done anything good in your life, and of course he's done amazing things in their life, right? And he's pouring into them and he's saying, listen, because God has done this stuff, you need to take note and then change your behavior accordingly. So if there is any encouragement in Christ and comfort in the love of Jesus, let's just think about this for a second. You know, some of us, some of us think about our failures a whole lot. And if you were one of the people that Paul would have communicated to in Philippi, the average person would have either, either been so poor that they weren't ever going to own their own property or they were going to be slaves. And frankly, once a person was born into one of those kind of stations in their society, you pretty much never got out. You know, people in our country, they can be born poor and they can die rich. And sometimes they get born rich and they die poor, right? happens both ways. Well, in Paul's day, that didn't work. And to be born with money generally meant you kept that money. And if you were of a certain ethnic group, you were thought to be better than other people. And it was a very stratified culture. And no surprise, Christianity worked best 
where the people were at the lowest stratas of that society. And the reason why is because when Paul and other missionaries would come to them, they would say, Jesus loves you. And they would use words that were really powerful. They would say words like this one, the Greek word behind encouragement, is a word that means calling. You have a personal gift, they would say. God loves you, and he loves you uniquely. And even though you look like one in, out of millions of slaves across the Roman Empire, God looks at you, and he sees, he sees something special. And he sent his son to die for you. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for your life, and he would have done that if it was just you. And that sort of truth appealed to people who couldn't see any good in themselves apart from everybody else. They just thought they were cogs in a, in a, in a whole machine. You ever take apart your, your car motor? Anybody ever try this? And then, one of you. And, and, and at the end of it, you put it all back together, and there's like two or three pieces that aren't in there, and they're sitting out on the pavement, and you go, well, I wonder where those should have gone. Yeah, that's a bad feeling, right? Because everything in your car is needed, and you wonder what it was there for, and you don't know. It's often in the world that Paul was in, it's often as though people lived in as kind of parts of this machine. And when they got left out on the pavement, it's no big deal. If somebody died, no big deal. It, in fact, it got to the point where babies were really unimportant. We got a bunch of babies here, right? And if you were born in one of those poor, uh, poor castes or poor stations of society and you had too many kids and you couldn't help it, you just kind of put the baby out in the trash heap outside of town. It became very, very normal. The early church grew by going to the local trash heaps every morning and picking up those babies, especially girl babies, and they would take them back to their homes and they would raise them as their own. That was the first form of adoption. That happened for the first couple hundred years of the church. Isn't that amazing? But the world that Paul was in, everybody was just, they lacked so much meaning that when the gospel hit them, they were like, wow, this is amazing. Jesus loves me. It's an amazing line. In the 1960s, there was a guy who died who was one of the world's most famous theologians. His name was Karl Barth, and he was from Germany. And one of the things about Karl was that he, he was kind of known all across the world, not so well known in the United States, but he was about to die. And these theologians gathered around his deathbed, and they, they asked him, you've written books. He's most famous for a, a, a commentary he wrote on the book of Romans. And they said, you've had all of these these great thoughts, Dr. Bart. Tell us what was the most important thought you've ever thought. And in gasping language, just kind of breathing out, he said, the most important thought I've ever had is Jesus loves me. And when you don't have a great value in your life and you don't have a great self-image and the gospel comes to you and says, humility says, you are powerful in Jesus and you are loved by Jesus and you are cared for by the God who birthed this whole planet. When that is what you come to realize about yourself, it transforms your identity. And so Paul writes and he says, if you have any encouragement in Christ who loves you, if you have any comfort in the fact that this God loves you, well then your behavior should change. He goes on one more line and he says, if you have any participation in the Spirit, the word there is koinonia, which means community or fellowship. It just means getting together. If you have any connectedness in the Spirit of God, where what God's a part of, you now see yourself a part of, you've been gaining meaning through this. If that's what you're a part of, then your life should change. It goes on and says one more line. If you have any affection, any sympathy, and just let's go back to the very beginning and read those verses just in their original context. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, he says. I have joy already, but complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
And then he says, you got to get rid of some stuff. These are the things that kind of make your conduit something that grace can't flow through. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Yesterday we were driving. I said in first service it was you, Paul. We were driving in Pottstown. Was it you and I or was it my neighbor? I can't remember now. We were driving and we pulled up on the end of Evans and Wilson. And there was a guy going straight and I pulled ne- right next to him like this. And for reasons that I'll never understand, he decided that he didn't need a left turn signal and he was going to redirect himself and go left. But I was going left. And if you know that intersection, it's a one-way street turning onto a pretty narrow street. We, we couldn't both go left. That was going to go bad. So he pulls out into the intersection and so do I. And then he starts to communicate. He, does a, he, he did an admirable job communicating. And he looked across at me, and his thought was, you are who? Why would you cut me up? Why would you pull up alongside me and turn left? You're crazy. And being the person who lacks humility in my driving, I looked back at him and put both my hands up there like, what's the matter? Are you from, you know, wherever? And, and we had this kind of communication. And then I found my humility and let him go first. I didn't want my last act in Potsdam to be, you know, to get in a car accident. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And one version of the Bible says vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I don't believe people on 422 are more significant than me. Every time I'm on 422, I, where's Mike Gensler? I think I'm the most significant person on the road too. That's what I heard from your sermon a few weeks ago when you talked about what you were, how you stop traffic on 422 from going too fast. Yes. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if you're going to examine your life and you're going to sum total the whole thing and say, what has God done? And oh my, I do have identity that's different. And I do have a transformed life. And God has said, yes, I love you. And you have experienced this at some point and you're walking in it. Well, then by all means, it should change your behavior and how you connect to other people. And your grace level should be different because you get humble. And God says, this is a way of saying, you're more oriented up there and who God is than you are out there by who's cutting you off in traffic. And if that's a problem for you, you have a problem with God. We have a problem with God. Wouldn't you agree? When you see this passage of Scripture lined up, it means there's a problem with Josh Bitework's heart because I have a hard time getting out of my way long enough to let God work in me and to do his great work in and through me through the will and through the works of Josh Bitework. That's, that's a hard thing for me to hand over to God. I just keep wanting to do it my own way. He goes on and says a little more, and we need to talk about this, and it's really important what he says. He goes on to talk about Jesus. And he says, if you don't want to look at your own life and you can't see this stuff working through you, well, then let's just look at the life of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, he writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, theologians call this the condit, the, um, I'm going to misspeak it. It's a theological word. These are tough words. They have multiple syllables. You know what I mean? The condescension. It means that if, I, if I'm condescending and I look at you, Kathleen, and I do totally condescend towards Kathleen because she is a Green Bay Packers fan, and I always think people like from Green Bay, they're lesser human beings. That's the way I, you know, I'm a 49ers fan. And Rob Bruner, you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. You're even worse. So, um, <laughs> 
But the, 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 the theological version of this is that Jesus was a member of the Trinity. And he came all the way from up here down to right here where Josh Bitework is and where Kathleen is and where Rob is. As tough as that is for me to say. God has grace on Cowboys fans. And he looks across us and he loves us. And Jesus is a member of the Trinity, one of the Godhead. He, there, remember, there's three persons and one God, right? Kind of confusing. But he comes down and he says, though I'm in the form of God, I'm not going to count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. He looked across at us and said, I will be like one of them. This is humility. He's giving up things willingly, power things. Nobody else could do this. And he's giving these things up. And he's saying, I will join the human race. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And the cross is the worst form of death, not just because it hurt the most, but because it was public and nasty and you made people look really stupid when when they did it. The Romans loved to persecute people by crucifying them because it made them look really bad and their neighbors and family had to watch. But then it goes and it says, the gospel flips this whole thing around. This is how we live. We give ourselves over to God and we watch. And it might mean that we lose some things. It might mean we lose our job. It might mean that economically we don't do as well. It means we don't cheat on our taxes, among other things, and you're not going to do as well. You know, when you, when you, you think about it, do, does crime pay? It actually does. It pays very well. There's people getting ma- making a lot of money doing the wrong thing in this world, and yet they're, Jesus isn't a part of any of that, right? So you might be called to sacrifice some stuff to follow God. And all across this world, there have been people who have sacrificed even to the point of giving up their life. And at the end of this, it goes on and says, Therefore, God, because Jesus was obedient, because Jesus was humble, because Jesus decided to go through this process in grace, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One way of thinking about this is that the distance from the top of Jesus' life to the very bottom, the moment, from the, the, the moment where he's sitting next to God in heaven to the point where he is on a cross dying and his mom is watching, that is the greatest distance downwardly that any human being has ever traveled, right? That is the worst. That's the farthest it gets. And yet, the inverse is also true. So God highly exalts him. And his name is above every other name. And he is the most exemplary of every being ever. He is the thing that we all look to for our salvation, the person we all look to for our salvation. And Jesus turns this whole thing around. And Paul says, listen, this is how we're supposed to live. When you hand it over to God, you hand it all over to God. And to the extent you hand it all over to God, he exalts you. And you don't ever know when that that moment's going to come. But it comes in connectedness with him. It comes in the end when glory is, is found. It comes at some point where every human being, when they hand over what they're hanging on to in their life, God turns that around and highly exalts it. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? When Paul lays this out, he says, listen, if you have any affection, if you have any encouragement, any sympathy, any of this stuff, well, then start there. But if you don't feel that today, well, just look at the life of Jesus because he exemplifies it. And when you see the life of Jesus written down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for us to read. When you see all of this, you can realize, well, this is the trajectory of God. And when people are willing to lay it on the line for God, God turns that around eventually. Now, it takes years and years and years for some of us, right? 
And so it's not a public thing. God's not always trying to do this to make a big deal. This isn't something where everybody gets a new Cadillac. No, it's it's the real gospel. And yet we live with God. And Jesus, at the end of his life, has this amazing moment where he dies on a cross, but then he rises from the dead, and then he goes to be with God forever. We have this great book at the end of the New Testament called The Revelation that talks all about it. One last thought. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Every act, every bit of our desire, the will and the work of our lives, every bit of it has the ability to either build the kingdom and salvation of God or to take away from it. And nothing is neutral. There is no Switzerland in this process. Everything we do is either in or it is out. That doesn't mean you're either going to heaven or hell based on every action you do. What it means is that you are either rebuilding creation and being a part of what God's doing on this plan and acting within his will and joining him in this humble process where he works through you, or you are not. And frankly, for most of us, myself included, it's a mixed bag, right? This is pretty hard for us. And so Paul writes and says, listen, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because every, not because your whole life and where you end up is dependent on this. No, that's grace. God has built that. He has birthed that through Jesus. If you've accepted his free gift of salvation, you're good that way. No, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying is God is working at saving this planet. God is working on saving people's lives. God is working on transformation all over the place. And what you do matters. And so every morning when you get up, you can't, afford to put it in neutral and just kind of coast through life. You have to make a choice. And every dollar you spend, has you have to make a choice. Everything you look at, every moment you decide to go watch a movie or read a book, whatever it is, what you're putting in, it matters. Your whole life, these things matter. Not in some sort of legalistic way. They matter because you're joining him or you're not joining him. And there's all sorts of thoughts about that. We have to rest in the middle of it. It doesn't mean sitting down is a bad idea. Doesn't mean spending money on being fun is a bad idea, but it does mean that there is this understanding, a balance in life, a wisdom that God wants to pour in us, and our motivations matter. What we desire matters. So work out your salvation, he says, with fear and trembling, because both to will and to work for his good pleasure is within your ability. What God wishes to do is to transform this place with people like you and me. Sometimes when I look at God, I think he kind of hamstrung himself. He decided to work through people. You know he's powerful enough to do whatever he wants whenever he wants, right? And yet he decides to work through Josh Whitework. That's either a mistake or a really gracious decision on his part to kind of condescend and to use somebody who's lesser than himself to do works that are greater for his greater glory. So we're called both to will and to work for his good pleasure, working out our fear are working out our salvation in fear and trembling, getting rid of everything about ourselves that's conceited, prideful, or fearful, and saying, God has built so much, so much encouragement, so much sympathy, so much affection, so much love, so much comfort, so much calling into our lives. He has said, you are so valuable, and you get Jesus in the middle of all this that we're willing to lay it all on the line on the other side. And the result of all of that is indescribable joy. I love the life of Dwight Lyman Moody because he's just kind of funny and ridiculous at the end of it all. He's not real smart. 
fact, at one point, there was a theory that there were two writers for the book of Isaiah. And if you've read Isaiah, about chapter 39, it almost feels like two different people wrote it. And this lady asked him in public one day and says, Moody, you're a preacher. Tell us what you think of Isaiah. Were there two writers or were there only one? Moody looks at her and he's like, I'm just glad there's an Isaiah at all. I have no idea who wrote it or how many people wrote it. I have no idea. That's humility, right? Sometimes we get stuck in all of these questions. We get stuck on vain conceit and fear and all of these different things. And God's like, listen, are you joining me or not? Are you going to take your joy in what I'm doing or not? Are you humbling yourself and laying it on the line or not? And when we're with him, it transforms everything. Galatians is a great book. He writes it earlier than Philippians, and I'll just quote a little bit of chapter 5. It says that the fruits of the Spirit are the product of this sort of walk, right? What is in God's character is then transferred to our character, and what we experience is him. And when we experience it, what was in him is something that becomes in us. And these are the words that are used to describe it, and we'll close this way. It says that the, the birthright of every Christian is that we're supposed to be both loved and loving. We're supposed to be filled with joy and kind of building this joy around us because God is joyful, and it says it in Nehemiah chapter 8. goes on, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then it says this interesting line. It says, there is no law against any of these things. And there might be a law that you can't worship God the way he tells you to. Governments do that, but nobody ever said you can't be joyful. Nobody ever said you can't be loving. And when we walk with him in this sort of humility, it transforms our character because it's his person in us. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what life would be? We're going to close in prayer, but I want to pray over Parker Ford Church those words, that we would have God's work in us, both in our desires and in our actual work, that he would be doing through this church what he, what he wishes to accomplish. That's how we're going to close the service. And then I think, Josh, you have one thing at the end, but the praise team is going to sing in between. Okay. Join me in prayer. Father, we bless you. What is wrong with us is completely and accurately just a simple difference between your character and ours. What we lack is what we have not found yet in you. And you wish to pour it in, Lord God. You just sit back there going, yes, I will do this. Yes, I will provide. Yes, I will give you patience for that teenager. Yes, I will provide hope for the person who's lost. You can just continue to do these things. And we could just, if we could just see how much you want to give and how much we kind of cloud this process with our own selves and the stuff we kind of hold out. We kind of think it's kind of normal to be kind of broken this way. And I think when Paul writes this passage, what he wants us to hear is there is more available than we've ever expected or hoped for. That you want to be better in us than we've ever thought. And you want to do more amazing things through us than we've ever been willing to believe. And so God, forgive us for not having your imagination for how great our lives could be. What a thought that you want our lives to be better than they are. And not just because we get repaired, but because we get to work for you and in you. And so, God, I would ask for Parker Ford Church on this day that you would bless it with the ability to be who you created it to be in Christ. And that you would bless it with the sense that we, in our desires and in our actions, are hugely important to your plan. That we're not people that just sit on the sidelines and you don't just do what you're going to do. No, you actually wish to do in us, not beyond us, but in us, what your call is. What a gift, Lord God, that you decide not to just move on and do whatever you want to do, but instead you wait and you work through human beings 
like the people in this room, like me. God, that is huge, and we're blessed, and we're so thankful, Lord God, and we love you, and we we just want to honor you in this moment and thank you for all that you've done in our church so far, and we ask that you'd bless it moving forward. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.